Blog Talk Radio. Thank you for tuning in to ALR PRA Law Talk Radio. Today is Thursday, June 24, 2010, and I'm your host, Nick Augustine. This show is produced by ALR PRA Incorporated, a national law practice management agency headquartered downtown Chicago, Illinois, and serving greater Chicago, Los Angeles, New York, and Washington, D.C. We want our law firms to spend more time practicing law, attending to their clients, and networking to grow their practices. Let us manage the day-to-day business. When quality matters, use ALR PRA. Today's guest is attorney Sarah Elizabeth Dill of the national law firm of Perry, Crumsiak, and Jack. Sarah Elizabeth Dill's practice focuses on immigration, criminal defense, international law, and sports law in Chicago, Miami, and Milwaukee. Prior to joining Perry, Crumsiak, and Jack, Sarah ran her own successful law firm in Miami, Florida, where she represented individuals and corporations before the Immigration Service, Immigration Courts, and provided criminal defense representation in state and federal courts. Prior to that, she was a trial lawyer for a nonprofit immigration agency and the Miami-Dade Public Defender's Office. Sarah has extensive trial and appellate experience. Sarah is currently serving as the co-chair of the American Bar Association Criminal Justice Section's Immigration Committee. For the last two years, Sarah has been appointed as a commissioner for the ABA Commission on Immigration. She also serves as on the ABA Criminal Justice Council. Uh, Sarah served as the chair of the ABA Young Lawyer Division also as the Criminal Justice and Juvenile Section from 2006 to 2007. Regarding today's show topic, on June 1st, 2010, a 5-4 decision by the U.S. Supreme Court issued its opinion in Burgess v. Thompson, and I'm probably mispronouncing that, <laughs> Burgess v. Tompkins, sorry, requiring that in order to invoke Miranda, the right to remain silent, an individual must clearly and unambiguously state to the police that he or she does not want to answer their questions. The topics that Attorney Sarah Elizabeth Dale is going to cover today are, one, an introduction to the Miranda rights, Two, the subsequent cases addressing Miranda rights. Three, the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in Burgess versus Tompkins. And fourth, Miranda decisions on the horizon. Now, before we begin today, we want to remind you that we do broadcast on Tuesday and Thursday afternoons at 3 p.m. Central, which is also 4 o'clock Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. These shows are one hour in length and feature updates in current law as well as expert practice management tips from the large global law firms to Main Street solo practitioners. Every Tuesday, our program provides commentary from leading authorities on legal issues in the news. On Thursdays, we talk about the information and legal issue spotting that encourage client referrals. Now, for those of you not used to Tuesday shows, we are launching our new format on July 1st of this year with a special broadcast this July 1st, Thursday at 12 noon. Um, we will have both Tuesday and the Tuesday Consumer Show and the Thursday Practice Management Issue Spotting Shows for Attorneys. Now, I would normally host that show at 3 o'clock uh, on Thursday. However, Thursday, July 1st, I will be speaking to Attorneys in Transition for the Law Bulletin Publishing Company, and more information on that event is available at www.attorneysintransition.com, and you can look under the Events tab. So we have a great show for you this afternoon. We invite callers to uh, call in with their questions by dialing area code 917-889-9732 and pressing option 1 to be placed in the caller queue. Again, that telephone number is area code 917-889-9732. Press option 1. 
So without any further ado, let's go to Sarah Elizabeth Dill. Sarah, how are you doing today? I'm good today, Nick. Thank you. How are you? I'm great. I look forward to uh, hearing all about the hotly uh, talked about uh, decisions that affected uh, Miranda, the Miranda rights and the rights remain silent. So as our title is, Speak Loudly and Clearly, if you want to invoke your constitutional right to remain silent, Sarah, take it away. Thank you, Nick. Everyone's heard of Miranda warnings. We've all watched television, law and order, movies where you see the person being miraculously found by the police and the first thing the police say is they're slapping the cuffs on them is, you know, you're under arrest, you have the right to remain silent, anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. Everybody's heard all of those things. And the problem is that, one, there are a number of misconceptions about Miranda and how it actually operates. And so we're going to talk about how in the last 44 years this has all developed. The Fifth Amendment to the United States Constitution has a privilege against self-incrimination, which says that a person cannot be compelled to give testimony against themselves. And in the 44 years since Miranda was decided, all, this whole body of law has been examined multiple times before by the U.S. Supreme Court, Congress has looked into it, states have addressed it, because it's been a very controversial decision. Police, prosecutors, judges, and defense attorneys either love it or hate it. And there's a clash between protecting this fundamental constitutional right of an accused versus the ability to investigate and prosecute crimes. And more than four decades after the Supreme Court ordered police to warn suspects about their rights before questioning them, the day-to-day -day practice has not turned out to be a simple ritual. Uh, it varies from state to state. And the encounter that people have with police, whether in interrogation rooms, scenes of crimes, or anywhere in public, still are a test of will. Police are there trying to break a suspect down, trying to get answers, and suspects are often trying to avoid talking themselves into deeper trouble, or in the case where the innocents are being questioned, it's a very coercive environment, which is what led to Miranda in the first place. As a result, the court has frequently reinterpreted its decision in Miranda. It did so again on June 1st, and this time the result tilted the warning procedures towards the police. So Miranda versus Arizona, 1966 case. The court basically said that an individual must be clearly informed, that's the exact language, clearly informed prior to custodial questioning, and that the person has a right to consult with the lawyer and to have the lawyer with him during interrogation. The Miranda warning addressed the court's concern that the circumstances surrounding in-custody interrogation operate to overbear the will of a person merely made aware of the privilege to remain silent. At the time, police manuals for interrogation in the 1950s and 1960s used these horrible techniques, the aluminum chair with the lone light bulb, the abusive police tactics. Uh, anyone who in Chicago who's listening knows that there's a trial going on right now with police officers who basically tortured people to get false confessions out of them. And so what the Supreme Court was looking at in Miranda was that they wanted to make sure that suspects had knowledge of the rights that were available to them. And they wanted to give, as they said, concrete constitutional guidelines for law enforcement agencies and courts to follow. That's where we came up with these warnings. And what the court in Miranda said was that a suspect must be warned prior to any question that he has the right to remain silent, which is going to be the right we'll focus on today, that anything he says can and will be used against him in a court of law, that he has the right to the presence of an attorney, and that if you cannot afford an attorney, one will be appointed for him prior to any questioning. 
The court said that these warnings have to be given at the outset if a person's in custody and is to be subjected to interrogation. We'll talk in a little bit about what those two things mean because they are important. And that after the warnings are given, a suspect may knowingly and intelligently waive the rights and agree to answer question or make a statement. And basically what the Miranda, how the Miranda rule is enforced is that if police violate the Miranda rule or if a waiver is not voluntary or knowingly and intelligently made, then at that point, any evidence they obtain from that is, for the most part, inadmissible at trial. There are a number of exceptions to that. That could be a radio show in and of itself. So looking at Miranda, the two main things that the court focused on and that have been the subject of cases since then are you have to have custody and there has to be interrogation. Custody means that the warnings are only required where there's been a restriction on a person's freedom. Either a formal arrest, obviously, if the police say to a person, you're under arrest, there's no question at that point that that person is in custody. However, if there's a restraint on freedom of movement, then that can also constitute custody, even if the person hasn't been formally arrested. There are cases where courts held that a person in their own home was not in custody when the police came to the home and wanted to question them at their dining room table. I tend to disagree with that because I think if police are there questioning you, the average reasonable person is not going to feel that they can just walk out their front door and leave the police there or ask them to leave. So Sarah, so the right, so it's a appreciation whether you're free to go or not. Exactly. Okay. And it's something that they, it's not from the officer's perspective as to whether or not the person's in custody, it's from the person's perspective. There are cases that even where a person went to a police station to talk to officers, the court said that's not custody, even though they were in the police station in an interrogation room talking to the police hmm. because the person voluntarily went there. So there's no hard and fast rule on these. Courts have to look at them case by case, all of the circumstances, and it's basically would a reasonable person believe that they were free to leave. And there's a long list of factors that courts will go into, a person's education, their psychological state at the time, uh, religious reasons, anything else that might come up that would influence age is another thing. And it applies to all criminal offenses or violations. So if you have custody, Miranda might apply. From there, you have to look at whether a person is being interrogated. That involves, as the court in Miranda said, express questioning, which is the police officer saying, where are the drugs? Did you kill this person? Where were you at this date and time? Or it's functional equivalent, uh, which is any words or actions on the part of the police that they should know, which was very interesting language for the court to put out there, uh, are reasonably likely to elicit an incriminating response from the suspect. So there are a number of cases where the police were talking, saying, doing things that they would, a reasonable person would respond and would react and answer to it, even if it wasn't a direct question. The exceptions to that are questions normally attendant to arrest in custody, your booking questions, what is your name, what is your date of birth, what is your address, those types of things are not considered to be interrogation. Uh, and again, it's the perceptions of the suspect, not the intentions of the police. And two little interesting things about this are that if a person does not know the person is a police officer, interrogation isn't present. So if you have an undercover officer talking to a drug dealer on the street, it's not considered interrogation because the person, you don't have that coercive environment and the overbearing will of a police officer. The other exception is that physical evidence is not protected. So having someone give a voice exemplar, a lot of times in robbery, 
investigations, if there was a masked person who said something in a lineup, they can have everyone up there say something, and that's not considered uh, subject to Miranda. Additionally, any physical evidence, hair samples, blood samples, because it's not testimonial, it's not communicative. However, there are questions and there has been litigation about, for example, a DUI arrest, that a person's, the way they walk, the way they're, whether they're able to stand, things like that, they actually become more testimonial for a DUI case. Courts, for the most part, have said it's not subject to Miranda. Uh, the only difference is that there are there is case law around the country where, in terms of roadside exercises, things like that, that if an officer reads Miranda and then asks someone to do roadside exercises or provide a breath sample, that at that point there's a confusion issue because they're being told that they have all these rights when Miranda really doesn't apply at that point. So those are the two things that uh, people often they think that Miranda always has to be read, and it doesn't. You could be arrested, taken to the police station, booked in, and then put in a holding cell, and the police will never read you your Miranda rights because they have no intent to question you and interrogate you. Uh, and so, I mean, the best thing to do in these cases is just know that you have to look for those two things. Uh, so Miranda was a huge decision. The country reacted quite strongly to it, uh, but what people need to keep in mind is that we're not the only country that has this. This isn't unique. Uh, there are variations of Miranda all over the world. All right, Sarah, let's take a real quick break before we talk about some of the subsequent cases uh, to Miranda. Um, again, you are listening to ALRPRA Law Talk Radio, where we bring you the experts and the attorneys who share the tips, trends, and latest updates that matter most to your law practice. Let's take a pause also for our first sponsor uh, advertisement. When you need the right legal services to advance your creativity, we're talking here about trademarks, intellectual property, copyrights, call the law office of Nancy K. Ducharme. Attorney Nancy K. Ducharme brings, brings large law firm experience and reputation to her intellectual property law firm, serving national corporate clients in the areas of trademark, copyright, internet law, and advertising law. You can find the Law Office of Nancy K. Ducharme by visiting nkdlaw.com and also for, by searching for the Law Office of Nancy K. Ducharme on Facebook. By clicking the Like button on the law firm's business page, you'll receive periodic blog updates with recent developments in the rapidly changing field of intellectual property law. Now back to our show with attorney Sarah Elizabeth Dill. Uh, Sarah talked a little bit about the history and introduction to the Miranda rights as we've known them. We're now going to talk about some subsequent uh, cases following the original Miranda decision. We want to remind our callers, by our listeners, to call into the show if you have any questions uh, by dialing area code 917-889-9732 and by pressing option 1 to be placed in the caller queue. Now back to Sarah. Thank you, Nick. So as I was saying, Miranda came down in 1966. And two years later, Congress passed the Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act. And this was, within this act, there was an attempt to overrule Miranda through legislation and basically say, this doesn't happen. That was 1968. In the meantime, cases came out, courts were examining it, more and more cases came up. Uh, one of the big problems that was initially in Miranda was whether or not the warnings were exactly as they were listed in the court decision. And what the court said is that these warnings, as long as the substance of them is indicated, they aren't going to prescribe one set of words that has to be said, so as long as the idea of it. There were a number of cases where the warnings that were given weren't necessarily 
close enough to what the court said in Miranda. And so in those cases, the court said, no, the evidence is out. They did not comply with Miranda. And that was a bulk of the litigation that went on for years, as well as determining what is custody, what isn't custody, what is interrogation, what is not interrogation. And so now, 40 years later, we have a good guide where, for the most part, you can, a judge can at least make a decision using all of the prior cases. Uh, and finally, in 2000, in a case called Dickerson versus United States, the court said that Miranda was constitutional, which it essentially said that in 1966. They came out in Dickerson, absolutely said it's a constitutional rule. Uh, the, the congressional attempt to overrule Miranda could not happen because it's constitutional. The court also declined to overrule or limit Miranda in the Dickerson case, which they could have done at that time. If they really had a problem with it, if they felt that it was a wrong decision, uh, but Justice Rehnquist at the time said that they were bound by stare decisis and that they couldn't just get rid of this rule. Hmm. Sir, can I hop in with a question? Um, year 2000, is, is, you know, what was going on that prompted uh, a congressional attack on the Miranda rights? It just it seems, you know, there, you know, there was a big span of years there, and all of a sudden this case. You know, the fact that the court didn't address it before that, it was one of those strange things, that uh, the case law wasn't right, the facts of the case, jurisdictional issues, mm -hmm. it was just one of those things that didn't happen until 2000. For the right case to come up on appeal and go to the court? The right case, the right justices. Right. I mean, everyone knows removing or appointing any particular justice can have a huge impact, especially, you know, as we saw with the recent decision, the 5-4 decision. Uh, it's not like the 9-0 decisions that come down. Right. So 2000, there were a number of cases in between there. I mean, Miranda can take up an entire semester of law school <laughs> if you wanted it to. But Dickerson was you know, the main one where the court really said, we're not overruling it, but Congress can't do anything about this either. So this year, we actually had two major Miranda-based decisions. There was one back in February, Florida versus Powell, and this was where they dealt with the nature of the warnings, what was contained with them. And there was some indication that something else was going to happen to Miranda based on the decision in Florida versus Powell. And it talked about how these warnings are important, that officers should be complying with these warnings because if law enforcement does their job as they're supposed to, all of the evidence is going to come in. And so the court, rather than speaking that they're trying to find ways for evidence to get thrown out, they were really putting the burden on law enforcement, saying you have the duty to make sure these rights are complied with. But in Powell, the defendant had acknowledged that he'd been informed of his rights, that he understood them, was willing to talk, and he even signed the form. Yet the court still found that it was something that was enough that they were fine, even though there was, there was some indication in the warnings that were given that didn't necessarily make it clear that a person had the right to counsel at any time that he wanted counsel, that it wasn't just a one-time shot to make that request. The dissent in Powell really focused on right to counsel, and they there was a distinction because in Miranda you have two rights that you're implementing. You're talking about your right to remain silent and your right to counsel. In the Miranda decision itself, the court really made a point of distinguishing what a person needs to do to raise the right to counsel versus the right to remain silent. And what came out during this is that, and over the last 40 years, your right to counsel 
you have to clearly and unambiguously state, I want an attorney. And there were a number of cases where an attorney would show up at the jail, but because the person in custody hadn't said, I want to see my attorney, they didn't let the attorney in to see the person. Juveniles run into a different issue. Uh, if a person makes a request for a priest or a probation officer or something like that, that's not a clear and unambiguous request for an attorney. So that's, the court was looking into all of this in Florida versus Powell back in February. And then June, the court hands down their, their decision in Burger v. Tompkins. And this, in this case, it was a 5-4 decision, so obviously very close. And the court made two things very clear. First, if a suspect does not want to talk to police, if he wants to invoke his right to remain silent, he has to say that with a clear statement because it's, they said it's not enough to sit silently or to remain uncooperative even through a long interrogation session. And second, they said if the suspect finally answers a question, even with a one-word response that amounts to a confession, that is understood as a waiver of the right to remain silent and the statement can be used. Even if, they, even if the uh, interrogation is long and the person is, uh, let's say, in a holding cell for hours at a time and is broken down and then they talk or say anything, even though they've invoked their right, they're now waiving it by talking. Exactly. And, you know, and I'm, well, as we go through the case, one of the things that I want our listeners to keep in mind is that what the court in this case really did is they took the original language in the Miranda decision that said you have to clearly and unambiguously state that you want your right to counsel, you want your right to an attorney, that language was nowhere in Miranda with the right to remain silent. And that what the court basically did is they took that language and they applied it to the assertion of a right to remain silent. So a little bit of background in this case. Um, Tompkins, the defendant, was convicted of murder, assault, and firearm charges. Uh, he's now serving life in prison without parole. And when the court ruled that his Miranda rights had not been violated, they reaffirmed his conviction and sentence. Now what happened in this case, uh, there was a shooting in January of 2000 in Michigan. More than a year later, he was questioned by two detectives in a county jail for close to three hours. At the beginning of this, the officers read him his Miranda rights, asked him to read part of the list out loud to make sure he understood English so that there's, because there is a requirement that if a person does not speak and understand English, they have to interpret the rights into whatever language this person speaks. Uh, because otherwise the person cannot knowing voluntarily waive their rights. Uh, Mr. Tompkins refused to sign the form and there's a dispute about whether the officers ever actually asked him if he understood the warning. The detectives kept questioning and they even admitted later at a hearing that the questioning was almost completely one-sided and a few of his answers were single words. Three hours later, and for most of this, the record, part of the record is a little unclear, uh, which Sotomayor dealt with in her dissent, but after three hours where virtually the officers were doing 99% of the talking, Tompkins had stayed silent, which should be a clear intention that he doesn't want to talk to them, he doesn't want to answer their questions, they asked him if he believed in God. Tompkins, tears swelled up in his eyes, he said yes. The officers then asked him, do you pray to God? He says yes. The officers then said, do you pray to God to forgive you for shooting that boy? And Tompkins says yes, and then looked away. He refused to make a written confession and the questioning stopped after three hours. That one word confession was used at his trial. 
and obviously the basis of his conviction. After, now, after he had invoked his right to remain silent, and he had no idea that by saying, you know, anything that he was going to have a front. Was he waiting for his attorney, or what? Well, here's what's interesting in this case, is that he never said, I don't want to talk to you. He just stayed silent. He didn't answer questions. He didn't say a thing. He didn't sign a form, which the dissent, and, you know, we'll get into that, talks about how to invoke your right to silence by remaining silent shows that you don't want to answer the questions, and that if officers are allowed to sit there and question you for five hours waiting for you to break, that's the very type of thing Miranda was initially uh, brought to be to prevent. And, you know, the test of will. So that was the background of the interrogation in Tompkins. And the majority opinion, which was Justice Kennedy, Roberts, Alito, Scalia, and Thomas, the conservatives, uh, all felt that interpreting how a person invokes their right to silence under Miranda is important and also how a suspect can waive the right to remain silent. So what they did is they went back to 1994. There was a decision called Davis versus United States. And this is what we talked a little bit about before. The court in Davis said that in order for a person to claim their right to counsel, it has to be clear and unambiguous. The court said this is going to apply the same way to your right to remain silent that you have to make it clear and unambiguous that you want to remain silent and you don't want to talk to police. Kennedy stated that there is no reason to treat the rights differently and that if, this is from the decision, if a suspect could invoke the right to silence by simply staying silent or by some other ambiguous act, omission, or statement, that could complicate dealings with police and require the officers to make difficult questions about what the suspect actually intended. Uh, so in this case, the court said it was decisive that Tompkins did not say that he wanted to remain silent or that he did not want to talk to the police. They ignored the fact that for three hours, he didn't say anything. And it was in these final four questions requiring yes or no answers that they found that he never actually invoked his right to remain silent because he didn't say so. This seems pretty shocking. It is. It was a, for, across the board, it was a very shocking decision that uh, now individuals have to start talking to police. And, you know, we'll talk, once we get through the decision, we'll talk a little bit about how this is actually going to play out and some of the dangers that this is actually going to create in the interrogation room. Let's take a pause right there and continue. Um, very shocking decision here. So, again, a, a message from our second sponsor, Get Clients Now and Jim Thompson. If you want more clients, more clients, who doesn't want more clients? We could all use more clients. Um, there's a seasoned attorney and marketing coach you should talk to. His name is Jim Thompson, and the program is called Get Clients Now. Jim will help you take the crucial steps towards increasing your firm's revenues. The Get Clients Now program employs various time-honored techniques to help you attract new business and encourage referrals from those you already know. To learn more about Jim Thompson and the Midwest Consulting Group, please visit MidwestConsultants.net. And also check out his testimonials on Facebook by searching Get Clients Now. ALRPRA strongly endorses the Get Clients Now program and understands the personal accountability component of this course. You can get in touch with Jim Thompson today by visiting MidwestConsultants.net. For those of you just tuning in, this is ALRPRA Law Talk Radio. We are talking to attorney Sarah Elizabeth Dill, who is telling us about the recent legal developments regarding the Miranda rights 
in the Burgess versus Tompkins, I said it correctly now, Burgess versus Tompkins decision, um, and the topic of our show today is speak loudly and clearly if you want to invoke your constitutional right to remain silent. Sarah was just telling us um, about Mr. Tompkins and how he did not want to talk to police, and then after hours of questioning, questioning was uh, broken down and spoke, which led to his uh, ultimate conviction, it seems. So, uh, Sarah, let's continue on Mr. Tompkins. Great. So, as the court said, you have to clearly and unambiguously state that you want to remain silent. And the court said that questioning can continue. They didn't say how long. However, if three hours was acceptable, where does it stop? And they said that questioning can continue until the suspect explicitly and without ambiguity invokes the right to silence. If the suspect continues to remain silent or uncooperative, police may use a strategy to try to get the suspect to confess. So basically what we're saying is all of these interrogation techniques that the court in 1966 said, we don't like this, it's not right, it's violating their rights, we're bringing them back at this point. And Where's the limit? A person has to actually say, I don't want to talk to you. But what's the limit of, of the, you know, the, uh, you know, the police activity uh, in getting them to talk? I mean, is there... Does this case talk about a limit? I mean, it says that once someone clearly and unambiguously states that, but then the question becomes, and we've seen this in litigation, especially in the invoke previously, most of this is in the right to counsel side because that's where they said you need a clear and unambiguous statement, where someone saying, maybe I should talk to an attorney, might not be an invocation of the right to counsel. So, it's, I mean, it's going to be interesting to find out what people have to actually say how we're going to have litigation left and right about whether what someone said it was an invocation of their right to remain silent. And you're still going to have police officers when someone says that, are you sure that you want to stay silent? I mean, talk to us, help us out. I mean, these are the very things that they use in interrogation. You know, if you just tell us your side of it, we'll get you out of here. Things like that, that frequently, frequently happen during interrogation, that now police are going to be allowed to do that. And the question will become, how much of that will police be allowed to do and if someone subsequently confesses, will the court have found a waiver or will these tactics be considered too much? So the court said that Tompkins, by saying yes to the question about praying to God for forgiveness, this course of conduct indicated he was surrendering the right to remain silent. This raises another issue. As the court in Miranda said, the only way that you can waive these rights is knowingly, intelligently, voluntarily. The court seems to be saying, we want a clear and express statement that you're invoking your rights, but to waive your rights, it can be as ambiguous as we want it to be, which seems to flip decades of decisions of the Supreme Court. And the court, Justice Kennedy wrote, if Tompkins wanted to remain silent, he could have said nothing in response to the Texas questions, these questions that came after three hours of nonstop questioning, or he could have unambiguously invoked his Miranda rights and ended the interrogation. So the major theme underlying the opinion was that they felt the detectives gave the rights as they were supposed to, and they validly determined he understood them, which then begs the question, if he understood his rights and he didn't answer questions for three hours, obviously he was invoking his right to remain silent. But the court said the way that the interrogation went depended upon choices that the suspect had available to him. And so it's, they basically said that he chose to give evidence against himself. It was completely voluntary, but 
I think if anyone out there sat in an interrogation room for three hours with officers constantly questioning you, we don't even know the extent of what was said because there is not a transcript. This wasn't a confession that at the time, now most states, including Illinois, require that at a certain level interrogations must be videotaped. Uh, at the very minimum, a lot of officers have gone to audio tape just so that there is, you can sense a lot more from audio than you can from an officer's notes of what happened. And so what's interesting in this case is that Justice Sotomayor, I think this was one of the most interesting decisions from her as a new justice on the court. She wrote one of the most strongly worded dissents I have ever read. Justices normally give a lot of deference. They're not necessarily attacking each other in their decisions. This was a decision that she did not hold back about what she thought about the majority opinion. And she stated that the decision was a more sweeping decision than it needed to be, and it carried out, it carried out quote, a substantial retreat from the protection given by the Miranda decision. She criticized the court, saying that they, you know, were basically making a rule that suspects have to use, and she said, quote, magic words in order to claim their right not to give evidence against themselves. And she said that police were not held to advise suspects about what words they might use to claim that right, which leads to the question of, are we going to have to add something to these Miranda warnings where police say, if you want to invoke your right to remain silent, you must say so now. So perhaps that's going to be something that in the future we will add to the Miranda warnings to say, do you want to invoke your right to remain silent? At which point the suspect, if they say yes, then perhaps the interrogation will have to end. You know, Sarah, I'm really surprised that they didn't include that in this Burgess in this case. Um, if you would think that logically, if they're going to make a substantive change like that, that they would carry on to say that that must be, you know, stated during the warnings. I'm really surprised. Are you surprised? I'm not surprised only because the way that the majority in this case worded their opinions. They didn't say that they were. this was a new rule. They didn't say that this was a new interpretation. They said, well, this is how we've always treated the right to counsel. Now we're suddenly going to apply this to the right to remain silent. And, you know, as I read this decision a few times, and what really the court did, which I hate to say that the top justices in the country got it wrong, but they really confused the traditional analysis of invoking a right versus waiving a right. And for a person to waive their rights knowingly, voluntarily, intelligently is required for a waiver. It has to be clear, it has to be unambiguous, so that there are no questions down the road. For example, a suspect who is going through uh, a psychological event, or they don't, they're under the influence of psychotropic drugs or other things, can be found to not knowingly, voluntarily, and intelligently waive their rights. A suspect who's being tortured cannot voluntarily waive their rights because it's the result of coercion, torture, and improper police practices. What the court did is they took what's required for waiver because that's considered, if you're waiving your rights, that's a very important step in the process. It's a very serious thing. That if you're going to waive those, we need to know absolutely 100% for sure that you knew what you were doing. Well, it makes sense because when you say, I'm going to waive my right to counsel, you're what, that implies that, well, I know how to answer these questions. I know how to represent myself. I don't need an attorney to advise me on the law. That's really what you're saying when you wait, or, you know, I don't feel like I need an attorney. Um, that sounds, you know, to knowingly and voluntarily waive those seems like a real thought process there. It is. And 
which was weird now that the court said, no, this is also going to apply if you're going to invoke your rights. Well, that goes against the nature of a right. If you have a right to something, it's there. And your that right applies, it's absolute. You don't need to do anything for that right to apply. The court is now saying, yes, if you want to remain silent, you have to actually say something. So that's what happened, that's what the opinion said. And it will be interesting to see what happens over the next few years as there are challenges, how this is going to impact defense attorneys when looking at did the police violate Miranda. Um, and there's been a strong reaction to this. I'll just go through from around the country. Uh, the main argument is that this ruling retreats from what was established in 1966, which was a widely accepted rule. Police manuals around the country have they know that the, how Miranda is supposed to apply. They're trained about when they have to read Miranda rights. Most jurisdictions even have forms in the main languages in their jurisdiction. In Miami-Dade, for example, the Miranda form that police are required to use has English on the top, Spanish on the bottom, all of the questions. They go through it. It's written in Spanish. The officer reads it in Spanish. Uh, it's become a common practice. And you know, even in cases where if someone refuses to sign, you know, suspect refused to talk. We've all seen those in arrest affidavits or other police reports where it says, you know, suspect refused to say anything. And the police recognized that that was the person invoking their right to silence. Uh, so what the biggest criticism of this decision is going to allow the police to continuously just chip away at a person, continue questioning them until they finally say, I'm invoking my right to remain silent, or whatever it is that the courts are going to find is sufficient. Uh, the Baltimore Sun described this decision as continuing, quote, a recent trend of chipping away the protections afforded by the landmark Miranda decision. Chicago Tribune reporter criticized this opinion as impossible to square with the psychological reality of police interrogation. LA Times criticized the court for failing to clarify that police must warn suspects that if they want to assert their right, they must say so. So again, you know, this isn't just something that a few people said, why didn't the court put this in their decision? And Sotomayor was seen as drawing on her real-world understanding of the pressures of interrogation. And it is something that interrogation methods, techniques that the police are taught and trained to use, it does not present an atmosphere that a person is going to, or at least the reasonable normal person is going to know what to do, what to say, what their rights are. Uh, and the only, the only decision that really questioned if this is actually a good thing that's for the court to do is that Congress, and we'll talk about this after the next break, but whether or not other Miranda-based litigation and legislation might be forestalled given this decision. If legislators see this as more police friendly, as removing some of the impediments, as allowing for more evidence to be used at trial, that this decision was the court's way of doing that. I personally don't think that was the case. I think the court got it wrong. I think that they're trying to basically eliminate the entire Miranda decision. And so we'll have to see now what police are going to do, how they're going to handle this, whether jurisdictions are going to require that officers warn someone, uh, which from the standpoint, my, you know, in criminal defense practice, if the police do everything right, if no rights are infringed upon, if they do their investigation by the book, they have a slam dunk case for the most part. 
And that should be something for, you, police officers should want to abide by that because then they don't have the situation where the key evidence against the defendant gets thrown out and the case has to be dismissed. And that's really what a lot of the court's decisions over the last 40 years look to is saying, look, police officers, you guys do the right thing. You're not going to have a problem with these cases. And so in, with this new decision, we'll see. I mean, there may have to be a subsequent decision from the court saying in order for, you know, for the invocation of the right police officers, you have to warn. This is what a person has to say. You have to add a question to these warnings. And so we'll see what happens over the next couple of years about this. I'll tell you what, Sarah, some of the things that um, are popping through my head as you're talking about the, the change in the, uh, some of the principles and policy-based arguments on uh, having a right and needing to take an affirmative action to assert that right. You know, I think of some of the other constitutional protections and safeguards we have. Um, the Fifth Amendment, um, you know, right to not incriminate yourself. How about the Fourth Amendment, right to prevent from unlawful searches and seizures? What do we need to do? Tell police at the door, I'm sorry, I'm invoking my Fourth Amendment right not to let you in without a warrant. You know, I mean, I know that sounds absolutely absurd, but I think if you would have questioned and polled a lot of people earlier and asked them if, if something like Moran, you know, this Burgess decision, I think people would have said no way that would happen. Mm -hmm. No, and there has been a definite rollback. And what the interesting thing, I mean, these rights aren't a new liberal defense-minded set of rights. These rights were placed as amendments to the Constitution right after the Constitution was drafted. And, I mean, they're in the first ten rights. And, in, you know, in history, the number of amendments we've had since then, they're few and far between. And the fact that these are such basic rights and that individuals, I mean, all of us have watched the shows where someone goes on the street and asks, you know, what, are, what is your right to remain silent? What does the First Amendment say? What does the Fourth Amendment say? I've seen shows where they are asking law students what their rights are, and they don't even know. And so it's something that, when you look at how far this is going to apply, it is somewhat scary. And given that the traditional person who is in an encounter with police, they're often uneducated, they don't understand rights, they don't understand what they can do, what they can't do, it's a very intimidating process. And the fact that we're not, telling, we're not necessarily telling people how you're supposed to invoke or waive your rights, that even though we're going to warn them these are your rights, but unless you say, as Sotomayor said, the magic words, the rights lost you. And I think that really goes against the very nature of a right. And it's going to lead to further police improper tactics. Uh, I think we're going to see a number of confessions either coming out or, you know, it may be something that we, we have to advise people, you know, this is exactly what you need to say. And when it comes to searches, that is a very serious effect. And how much in the last 40 years with searches in the Fourth Amendment, the court has made a number of exceptions for that. Now it seems to be that we're doing that with Miranda. It's a really uh, interesting, I'll use that word uh, sparingly, interesting time. Um, I want to rec uh, recommend to our callers, remind them that they can call in and ask any questions. Um, I know this is a rather complex decision. The area code to number to call in, area code 917-889-9732. Also, 
for those of you out there, we highly encourage people share this information you know, what, using social media or what other channels of communication you have to communicate with your friends and family. Let people know that there's a change in the law, that you need to speak loudly and invoke your right to remain silent. And um, you know, please share because, again, as, as uh, Attorney Dill is indicating, it's uh, quite an arduous task at best to educate an entire society on this. So before we continue, we want to pause and take our final sponsor break. We want to thank everyone again for tuning in to ALR PRA Law Talk Radio, where we bring you the experts and the attorneys who share the tips and latest trends that matter to your law practice. A message from our final sponsor, Bridges Court Reporting. Bridges Court Reporting is a court reporting agency located here in Chicago that provides the luxuries that premier law firms need, extending far beyond the professional courtesies and style that have made Bridges Court Reporting a well-known name nationwide. The Bridges website and software allows you to access all of your transcripts and exhibits as well as schedule court reporters from any computer with internet access. So again, whether you're at home, at the office, traveling, you can hop online, Go to Bridges Court Reporters website, schedule court reporters, receive all your transcripts, and get your work done. And before long, you'll wonder why you ever used another court reporting agency. Again, conveniently located across the street from the Daily Center in Chicago, Bridges Court Reporters are ready to serve all of your court reporting and transcription needs. Please also understand that Bridges Court Reporters are nationwide and can go anywhere you are with no additional charge to you. Please visit BridgesCourtReporting.com for more information and to schedule your next court reporter. Back now to our guest, Attorney Sarah Elizabeth Dill, to talk about some of the issues that are on the horizon following this, uh, this case. And we want to remind you again to call into the show and ask us any questions um, at area code 917-889-9732. Thanks, Nick. Uh, you know, as we started talking about before the break, when you asked about how this is going to be expanded, how much worse this is going to get, something that's been in the news that is a very controversial topic, Miranda is not absolute. There was an exception that the Supreme Court found to Miranda for public safety. And what happened in the case of New York versus Quarles, the Supreme Court considered whether the admissibility of a statement elicited by a police officer who had apprehended a suspect that they believe was carrying a firearm. Uh, this was in a crowded grocery store, and when the officer arrested the person, there was an empty shoulder holster. They asked him where the gun was. He nodded in the direction of the gun and said, the gun is over there. Now, the Supreme Court found in this that the statement was admissible because the police had a concern for public safety. They needed to protect the public, uh, not even a concern that a suspect or someone else would use the gun, but that a child in a supermarket would pick it up. You know, there were a number of concerns in this case. And so what the court said is that Miranda must yield in a situation where concern for public safety is paramount to the adherence to the literal language of the rules announced in Miranda. And so this is the beginning to show that, you know, there were times where Miranda wouldn't necessarily apply. Fast forward to present day where we have the concerns coming out of Guantanamo and the treatment of prisoners there, the concerns of having people being held overseas in the secret prisons, torture, other things that are coming into play. Uh, Attorney General Holder testified before Congress about a week or so before the decision in Burberry v. Tompkins came out and said that we needed to modernize and clarify Miranda for terrorism suspects, which 
what the Obama administration and Attorney General Holder's position has been is that Miranda warnings need to be altered when we're dealing with terrorism suspects. And it's kind of a plan, the public safety exception. It's the kind of thing where if they have someone, especially recently, you know, with the attempted, so to speak, and I say attempted with a little bit of tone because it was, you know, the Times Square bomber and what he actually did, the way he screwed up, I mean, just all of the messes that arose out of that. But the question of when you have a suspect and you have terrorism concerns and you think that there's the ticking time bomb in the middle of Times Square or any other place, that that public safety should apply and that we should formulate a new rule specifically for terrorism investigations. Uh, response to this, I mean, there was outrage across the board. And, you know, the question of terrorism investigations versus regular investigations. How are police going to know when encountering someone is this person a suspected terrorist and or should this rule just continue to apply across the board? That sounds like our, our Arizona problem. I mean, and that's, I mean, that, that does, there are issues of that. I mean, it's, you know, there's, I mean, there was all the litigation post-September 11th for racial profiling in airports, and, you know, one of the things that's come out is that there's been no evidence that Miranda has weakened the government's ability to gain valuable information from terrorism suspects. I mean, we have waterboarding, we have sleep deprivation, we have all these other means that we've been using. Why do we care about Miranda rights? Uh, they, the only thing that, we should think about is, does weakening Miranda make us any safer? All it does is that the evidence can't be used against these suspects in court, which as we all know, we have this ongoing debate of are we going to try terrorism suspects in the federal criminal courts or are we going to leave them before the military tribunals? And so with this new decision coming out from the Supreme Court in the Tompkins case, it's going to be interesting to see what the administration does. If they try to fast track a case through where there are motions to suppress statements and everything in the terrorism cases. Uh, we've got the case that was filed earlier this year in the Southern District of New York. And if the administration wants to broaden the exceptions to terrorism cases, how are these going to apply? Are we going to have cases that might be borderline terrorism cases, that we make terrorism cases solely so this exception applies, or are we going to you know, just have the result of not having these statements used against someone in court. So this is one area that it will be, we'll have to watch over the next few months uh, to see what the administration does, whether or not the court is going to make a ruling on this. As we saw yesterday, there was a decision from the court that for the material support for terrorism case, kind of showing where the court felt about that, but this court has been back and forth in terms of the tribunals and everything else. So given this ruling in Miranda, it's going to be even more interesting to see what the court says about do we carve out an exception for terrorism? Do we find it under the public safety exception? My opinion on this is that we leave the public safety exception and we just adjudicate these cases on a case-by-case -case basis. If it's something where they have evidence that there is a ticking bomb in the middle of Times Square, you have a public safety exception. You don't need something specifically for terrorism. Um, if it is something where they're just going to consider all cases. I don't think that's the right route to go. Uh, now we have Elena Kagan's confirmation hearings coming up this summer, and this is already going to be one of the things that gets added to the list of things. What do you think of this decision? How are your thoughts on it? What would you do? So it'll be interesting to see 
how she reacts to all of this and what some of her views are, because that's certainly going to shape uh, a little bit the way the court goes, even though in the Tompkins case it was a 5-4, Justice Stevens is not in the majority on this case, so whether Kagan would just be substituting in for his vote, or whether she may have had a view that may have been able to sway one of the other justices to say, you know what, no, we're not doing this right. Very interesting. Um, a lot of information here, a lot of decisions, a lot of future uncertainty. Um, just as a recap, can you, if you were to uh, tell, if a friend were to say, Sarah, can you tell me what I need to do if I ever get stopped by police? Uh, it's, it's interesting now. Um, I actually used to have, when I was at the Public Defender's Office in Miami, at the back of your cards there, actually, it listed the constitutional rights, and those were what you gave to your clients, uh, which was always interesting to have that on there. But basically, at this point, what people need to know is that you do have rights. And if you are questioned by the police, you just have to say, I'm invoking my right to remain silent. I don't want to talk to you, I'm not going to talk to you. Words like that I think would be sufficient as well as I want an attorney. I used to tell friends at parties and events, you know, when they'd ask these questions, the first thing out of your mouth is I want an attorney and give my name. Uh, at now it's I want to stay silent, I don't want to talk to you and I want an attorney. So saying I want an attorney is not enough? No. Uh, it, you have to clearly invoke both rights the right to remain silent, and the right to your attorney. And once that happens, according to the court in Tompkins, interrogation should cease at that point. That should be clear enough. And, you know, it's something where you shouldn't ask an officer, do you think I should have an attorney? Do I need an attorney? Do you think I should talk to you? And these police officers will do all they can to get a suspect to talk because it makes their job easier. And so it's certainly, you know, and even if you know 100% that you're innocent, it's still best in these situations to have an attorney there with you. And one of the things that the dissent in Tompkins looked at was the fact that attorney, the presence of an attorney, even for an innocent person or for a guilty person, it's important because if you have someone who is 100% completely guilty, it may be in their best interest in terms of sentencing considerations and everything else to talk to the police. But at least the attorney is there to guide the person to say, let's get this over with, we can get a better result, maybe we can get the charges reduced. I mean, there are times where an individual may want to talk to the police, but you certainly should have an attorney with you. And it's just very important that anyone who has these encounters with law enforcement invokes their rights. Their rights, they're there, they're for the protection of this individual, they're their protection for the integrity of our entire justice system. And if those rights are protective, the entire system functions as it should. The one last question that I have for you, Sarah, is what does your gut tell you on the likelihood that the um, instructions as they have to be read by police are going to be amended to include the new carving out of your rights? Do you think that's going to happen? How would that happen? What do you think we'll see in the future? I hope that it will happen. I think that given some of the other decisions that came out before this on what happens when police don't read something exactly or what is required to show that a suspect was informed of their rights. Uh, I think given this new rule that you have to speak if you want to stay silent, that we need to amend it. And whether it's going to be something that it's going to take another case, whether 
the justices will just find a case to be able to make that. I mean, I, if I had a case in my files that I could take this up right now, I would, because I think it's something that the court does need to speak out on. And my guess is that they will. Uh, this court, you know, for some of their wrong decisions, in my opinion, they have done a very good job of clarifying things as they need to. And going back, and when one decision wasn't clear enough, didn't, wasn't stretched far enough, they have come back very shortly thereafter to make it a little bit clearer. And so hopefully within the next term, there will be a case where they will have the opportunity to revisit this decision, make things a little bit clearer, and hopefully law enforcement agencies, prosecutors' offices, prosecutors have a duty to train their law enforcement officers that they're working with, and they, hopefully prosecutors' offices will reach out and say, look, just add this in there, because if this is there, you give them the opportunity, we're going to have evidence that's admissible, we're going to be able to prove our cases, and we're going to have a functioning justice system. Sarah, it's so important that everyone understands uh, the messages conveyed here today, and I would like to uh, invite anyone who has more questions to uh, get in touch with ALRPRA if you have a question for Sarah, or if you know some, uh, some groups uh, who would appreciate the opportunity to have a talk and learn more about uh, the changes to the law. Um, we also, again, encourage those of you out there to share this information with anyone who has questions, because the more people who understand what's going on with the law, the better the laws can be applied. So again, I'd like to thank Attorney Sarah Elizabeth Dill for sharing such great information on the past, present, and future of the Miranda Right to Remain Silent. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Nick, for having me. It's always a pleasure to come on here. Well, I look forward to the next one. You know, who knows what's going to come down from the court from day to day. So um, I'd like to also thank you, our listeners, uh, for tuning in to ALR PRA Law Talk Radio. Thank you also to today's sponsors, the Intellectual, law, the Intellectual Property Law Office of Nancy K. Ducharme, Jim Thompson of Midwest Consulting Group, and Debbie Bridges of Bridges Court Reporting. Again, ALRPRA Incorporated's mission is to educate the legal community on the relevant law practice management issues and cases that affect our daily lives and help us run our law firms, spending more time serving clients by our professionally managing their production and promotional activities as well. Again, ALRPRA's underlying mission values are transparency, flexibility, and humility. We are a full-service law practice management agency available nationwide when professional quality matters to your firm. Uh, thank you again, and please tune in next Tuesday, July 1st at noon to learn about our new consumer show, uh, which I will release the name of that right now. That one's going to be called the Consumer's Law Journal. So we're going to bring you attorneys who are going to share information about different practice areas so you can answer the question, do I have a defamation case? Is my neighbor's tree, you know, whatever, the th whatever it is, we really want to educate those of you out there on you know, when you have a good case and when you should contact an attorney. So, again, that will be uh, Thursday, Thursday, July 1st at noon. And, again, we thank you for all for tuning in. This is Nick Augustine for, AR, for ALR PRA Incorporated, and we thank you for your time.